The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday, May the 16th, and you're very welcome to the weekly politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. In today's podcast, we talk to our London editor, Dennis Staunton, to discuss the latest chess moves over Brexit and the customs union. But first of all, we were joined by the Fianna Fáil spokesperson on Brexit, Lisa Chambers, uh, by Fia Kelly from our political staff, and also by Sarah Barden, who's keeping the closest eye of all of us on the ongoing referendum campaign. I asked her how that campaign was going. Well, I think obviously it's intensifying as, as the as the clock ticks on um, and the Clare Byrne debate on Monday night, I suppose, put a re-emphasis on what the people were being asked on May 25th. And I think the aftermath of that debate has uh, created a little bit of panic amongst those who are appealing for a yes vote in the so, referendum So you take campaign. it, as, as most people seem to do, that, that the no side won if it were a if it were a boxing match, which in some respects it was, uh, that the no side won. Well, look, to be honest, I think the whole thing was a bit of a circus. And I think, uh, having watched it at home, I actually had a pain in my head after watching it. And I've been covering this uh, debate for quite some time and I didn't think um, I could get any worse in terms of the toxicity and stuff of the debate. But I thought that the actual... Uh, the makeup of the studio, the way it was conducted, I just thought was very was very poor. And I think if you were watching it and you were some way undecided and you had people shouting at you from both sides of the campaign, this isn't just confined to one side. I think it was it was a poor reflection on how this debate could. It's and interesting be though, isn't it? Because I mean, there's a lot of criticism for RT for that kind of zoo TV, zoo TV kind of format to bring that to this subject in particular. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there are people in RTE who will say the ratings were very high and not only that, the ratings went up as the show went on. So there were people tuning in as well as tuning out. Yeah, but I think if you looked at it, uh, you know, that's a question, I suppose, of editorial decision as to from RTE and I should, you know, far be it from me to question what they do uh, with their programming. But what I would say is that the debate itself, had it been conducted in a different manner, probably would have had the exact same viewings and ratings as it did then. You know what I mean? It's very hard to to test that theory. But I think uh, what this referendum campaign is about convincing people in the middle of the debate as, you know, to bring them to either side of the campaign. I think if you were watching that debate, it wouldn't have convinced you either way of the argument. Having said that, I thought the contributions from those who were opposed to repealing the Eighth Amendment were a lot stronger. They had a, a, a lot more of a visible and vocal presence in the audience as those who, uh, as opposed to those who were in favour of repealing the Eighth Amendment. And needless to say, having spoken to TDs and senators from across the spectrum, there are people, those who are opposed to repealing the Eighth Amendment, have a little bit of a, um, a little bit of kind of spring in their step. Spring in their step. Uh, while those who are in favour of repealing the Eighth Amendment have said that the debate hasn't helped their cause. And I spoke to one TD yesterday who um, is from down the country who said that they had no intention of canvassing. Um, they're in favour of repeal. Uh, their party is in favour of repeal. Um, uh, but they had no intention of canvassing. But after seeing the debate on Monday night that they were going to go out and canvass because uh, they, they, yes, they needed all the support. Because they, they needed, well, Lisa, you're in the minority in, in your parliamentary party. You're uh, you're advocating a yes vote. Uh, you're in County Mayo. Are you canvassing? Yes, and I was actually, we had the Together for Yes Roadshow came to Mayo at the weekend and we gathered in Westport. 
um, and I organised what we called a kind of a coffee, coffee and conversation morning and we had an all Mayo lineup on the panel. So myself, um, Ellen O'Malley Dunlop from the National Women's Council, um, Evie Nihulavon, um, uh, academic and broadcaster, and we had Tracy Smith from Terminations for Medical Reasons from Ballinan County Mayo. And people will remember Tracy if they watched the Late Late Show recently. And I think actually in the context of, of a properly run debate, the Late Late Show, I think, did a very good job and Ryan Tuberty did a very good job in moderating that debate and giving both sides an equal opportunity to participate and was fair to those in the audience. Um, I do have to take issue with the Clare Burn Show. I think it's a disgrace that terminations for medical reasons, the people that were invited to sit in the audience, were given no opportunity to contribute to the debate, despite their very real and traumatic issues being discussed openly um, in the room. And I think that was, I think that's very, I think it's a shame actually and a pity that they weren't allowed to contribute and the debate was not run properly. And I think that um, RTE need to reflect on that and to ensure that something like that doesn't happen again. Um, But the debate, I think people are quite fatigued with the debate. Mm. I myself have been um, very much immersed in this since last September when we when I was on the Iraqis committee. So it's, it's a long campaign. And, you know, is it, it intensifying now? Uh, I mean, yes, now there, there are more is. people out on the on the grounds, more, more people knocking on doors. It's getting it's getting very intense. Um, I think people are reporting back that they're feeling as though they're being targeted, um, that it's becoming quite personalised. I think that the, the, the direct targeting of Peter Boylan is, is, is a disgrace. Um, he's entitled to his views. Um, he has the support of the Institute of, Gyne- of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists. Over 80% of members took a vote on this issue. So he's within his rights to represent the organisation that he shares. But you Although know, I think isn't it the case that questions have been raised by some members of that organisation about the way in which... The organisation has been represented as being having a uniform position. You'll never have 100% agreement in any organisation on any issue. But they had a democratic ballot and they took a position as, 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 as the key institute representing doctors that actually care for pregnant women. I mean, if they weren't going to take a position, who's going to take a position? You know, I think the debate has descended into a little bit of chaos. We're not being asked on the 25th whether we personally agree with abortion. No one's advocating to say abortion is a good thing or a pleasant thing. It's not. It is a tragic choice that some women have to make. And we are not being asked to bring abortion into Ireland because it's already here. And thousands of women every year make that very difficult decision. And thousands travel to another country, to England and other countries, to be cared for by doctors in another country. So the question we're being asked on the 25th is, are we going to own up to the responsibility to care for our women at home? Are we going to stop closing our eyes and ears to the reality that abortion is there and is a very real reality for many Irish women? And are we going to accept that if if we want to show compassion to parents, to mums and dads that have had a diagnosis of fatal fetal abnormality, a woman or a young girl that's pregnant as a result of rape, um, a child that may be pregnant as a result of incest, a woman whose health can be severely impacted by continuing a pregnancy, if we want to deal with any of those issues, the only way to do that is to repeal the Eighth Amendment. But, but this about, we know. What about the fact, that I think the general perception would be, correct me if you think I'm wrong, that Mayo will vote no. And uh, what, I don't what, what know kind the of, answer what, to that. What's your sense of that on the ground in your constituency? My sense is that it's quite mixed. Um, the same would have been said for marriage equality and we voted yes. So I think it's very difficult to predict, actually. Um, I do feel support for yes growing. Um, since last year, I suppose because I was on the Oireachtas Committee, it became more of a topic for discussion among party members. And I've done, before the committee reported, I had done several meetings across the constituency and engaged with members. And since the committee reported and during this campaign, I have done meetings in Ackle, Belmullet, Westport, Kilshamaw, Swinford, Castlebar, Ballinrobe, and discussed this issue with Fianna Fáil members. And I can absolutely tell you there are people in Fianna Fáil that would be voting yes. I don't know the breakdown, but there are quite a lot of them. 
and they have come to me to tell me this, that they support my position on this. Equally, there are members of the party that are going to be voting no. But they have said to me, I respect your right to have a, have a view, to have your own opinion. And it's not going to change my support for you as a party member. So it's been painted as though we're, we're you know, not agreeing with each other and fighting among ourselves. That's not the case. Is there a it, silent yes? Um, I don't know if there's a silent yes as such. I think maybe there's a silent yes across the board because I don't believe actually there's 20% undecided right now. Mm. I think most people in the country know how they're going to vote. And I would agree with Sarah that I don't think the Clare Byrne show would have tipped it either way, to be quite honest. It was just chaotic. In terms of canvassing, when you are people engaging with you now? Or, like, or the sense you have, the, the, the feedback I'm getting, going, thank you very much, I've decided. Or. The, the feedback I'm getting across the board and talking to colleagues as well is that even in Dublin, there are a lot of households saying, look, we don't want to talk about it. And it's not that they're not being hostile. Mm. Um, no one's getting canvas cars thrown back mm. in their face. But I think there, it is an issue where people just feel they want to make their own choice. They don't want to be dictated to by politicians. Um, but I do uh, this line of we can't trust the politicians mm. coming from other politicians. I mean, that's just ridiculous. It's, yeah, well, it's not, not, the first time, not the first time we've heard it in referendum campaigns being, like, in particular. We're not, yeah. being asked, we're not being asked to trust politicians. We're being asked to allow politicians to pass legislation to trust women and doctors. Mm. No politician will ever make the choice for a woman whether to have a termination or not. No politician is going to be performing abortions. No politician is going to be going into the home of any woman to say, I want you to do X, Y or Z. It's just a nonsensical comment to make. And the argument would be from those who are uh, in favour of repeal is that we do allow politicians to set the circumstances in which uh, Irish women can access terminations, but those politicians are based in Westminster. That would be the argument that would come from the S side. But what I do think has been quite evident over the past um, number of weeks in particular as we get down to the crucial juncture is that Together for Yes wanted to run a campaign very similar to uh, Yes Equality. It's not the same referendum campaign. And I think what what the difficulty for Together for Yes was that they had no political experience. Because a lot of people who are canvassing for Together for Yes are young with no experience of knocking door to door. And I think the more that we get down to the crunch time, it, you know, those who are in favour of repeal from the political spectrum, and I don't mean with regards to individual TDs, because in fairness to individual TDs and senators for that matter, they've been out knocking in their own individual uh, constituency and stuff. But I think those who are in favour or and against, by the way, need to show political leadership. And I, and I reference... Uh, and are you saying because, they're less involved than they were in the marriage referendum? People from political parties, political organisations. Well, mar- marriage equality, um, for instance, the Sinn Féin party would have taken a bit uh, a significant stand in the marriage equality referendum, and they've done likewise with the um, with this referendum campaign. The Fianna Fáil leader at the time uh, didn't play an active role in the in the marriage equality referendum, but the, the Taoiseach Enda Kenny did, and the Taoiseach was played a very the then Taoiseach played a very significant role in that marriage equality referendum because he talked about how when he was a young politician, he had. Uh, reservations, uh, needless to say, about same-sex marriage. And then he was out there advocating for a yes vote in the marriage equality referendum. That was really important for Middle Ireland. And, you know, we can, everyone will attest to that. The difficulty in this referendum campaign is because there's freedom of conscience vote in fi- within Fine Gael and within Fianna Fáil, is that that political le- leadership isn't being shown from the two major parties, particularly with regards to the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar, who the majority of his party seem to be in support of the proposition to repeal the Eighth Amendment. Yesterday, he told uh, his spokesperson told political correspondents that he won't be participating in debates on this issue. Uh, he held a canvas yesterday morning at Tara Street with the Fine Gael party. I attended. It was a complete shambles. He spoke to about six people uh, on the, the campus. Broken down though, in fairness. 
Well, we walked from Tower Street to government buildings. Uh, In fairness to people like Helen McEntee, Pascal Donoghue, Richard Bruton, they ignored the media circus and they went uh, and they actually canvassed individual people who were walking the street, as did Owen Murphy and Charlie Mm. Flanagan. The Taoiseach waited there, stood there waiting for commuters to come out. But those are photo ops, really, aren't they? Mm. I mean, I know that the photo ops themselves are part of a campaign, but if you were talking about people going up every boreen and into every housing estate, Mm. you know, is is that happening from the political parties? Not. It isn't, I but don't the think. political parties aren't really like if anyone's canvassing, I'd imagine party. Lisa will tell us better. If anyone is canvassing, it's it's an individual TD taking it on upon themselves to engage with together for yes, they're not taking their yeah. machine out with them, they're not getting the local coming going, right right okay. every, out we go on Thursday and Wednesday night. It's it's very much an individual choice uh, about whether they canvass it's actually kind of almost like Sarah saying she talked to a TD yesterday who wasn't canvassing. I spoke to a, a different TD, I would imagine, because he didn't tell me they were going to have to canvass. They just said they, they weren't canvassing. It wasn't something they canvassed. They don't canvass in referendums. So I don't think that there is a great push from the parties to you know, go up every boring in the country and you knock on doors. I think the sense that people are getting that it is a personal decision, that people aren't really engaging with canvassers, perhaps has had a, a certain extent, uh, an effect but, on but, that but, as well. But if that is the case, Lisa, well then the what's happening in the media becomes more more mm. important, doesn't it, if there isn't as much of that face-to-face. So last week, the whole dynamic and the debate was around the role of Facebook and Google and the pros and the cons of that and various things happened. This week, it seems to be largely arising out of a televised debate at the start of the week. Um, my guess is we're going to have a number of polls over the next few days, and I presume, presume that they will then feed into the narrative over the next while, whether there's, I suppose, panic on the yes side or increased enthusiasm on the no side, or a sense that the... that you know, as the last poll showed, that it was set to pass relatively comfortably. I'm not sure it'll pass comfortably. Um, I think it's going to be quite tight, actually. I don't, I mean, there's lots of ways to canvas. I mean, for example, I was on my clinic rounds there at the weekend and I met a group of active retirement ladies. I won't say the location because I don't want to get to, to identify them. But these were ladies all above the age of 70. There was eight of them at the table having their, their, their lunch. And they initially go, no, do we know you or who are you? And they're, oh, yes, we know who you are now. And we're just talking about the referendum here. And I said, oh, right. And I wasn't sure which way they were going to go on it. And uh, one lady said, well, I'll be voting yes. And my son has rang me from Dublin and he wants me to vote yes. And we had a good talk about it. And that's what's happening. Mm. And the other ladies were kind of nodding along going, look, it's time now we, we dealt with this here at home. This is from, you know, senior, senior women in a rural area. So this idea that, you know, rural constituencies are, are so different to urban constituencies. I don't buy that. Um, you know, we have a different demographic. We definitely have an older um, population in some more of the rural areas. Lots of young people have gone to Dublin and the cities to work, and that's just the way that it is. But I do think there is an, an, a level of compassion and understanding among especially older generations who have kids and who have grandkids and have seen firsthand the impact of the Eighth Amendment because they were around in the 1983 referendum. They've seen the 35 years since then, what has happened. And I think they have um, a quite wise look outlook on it. A last question to you, if, if, if you don't mind, which is that if, as you hope, the referendum is passed next week and then we move to a legislative process um, in the autumn, uh, you say that the members of the Parliamentary Party are respecting each other's differing views. But what happens then when we get into the nitty gritty of, of passing legislation, should that happen? I mean, is that not bound to cause divisions within the party? Well, you know, as has been said by, by Fiek and Sarah, it's, there's divisions in every political party on this. 
you will not get 100% agreement in any political party. There is a little bit more of a spotlight on Fianna Fáil for whatever reason that is. Um, you know, and we have members... Well, I suppose on, it's because the, lead, members, the leader is in favour and the majority of his parliamentary party are against. That's Well, you notable. know, we have, we have a people, we have a, mem- a membership as well and it is varied. It's and I think we have, to, we have to be respectful of the fact that some of our members are voting no. Some are voting yes. Within the PP, it's the same. We're all colleagues at the end of the day and we've lots of other issues that we do agree on. But in terms of the legislation, I hope that we have that difficulty and that we have that challenge that we are dealing with the legislation because that means we've repealed the Eighth Amendment. It's going to be a massive challenge across the board. But I think that we will deal with it as we have done with any other piece of legislation. There will be amendments, there will be debates, there will be discussions. And I hope that whatever happens, if the Eighth Amendment is repealed, and I think that the people know what they're voting for, that the legislation that is there, that has been published in advance, that effect will be given to that legislation. That's my own personal hope. We we will leave it there. We are going to continue covering the referendum over the course of this week and further podcasts. Sarah will be joining us, of course, as she's raising her eyes to heaven. And indeed, next (laughs) week, right up to the vote, which is, as you say, only nine days away. Stay with us and we'll be joined by Dennis Staunton to discuss where the Brexit negotiations are. You're listening to the Irish Times. Dennis, a lot of our listeners will have heard Tony Connolly's report on RTE Radio this morning in relation to a a, a quote-unquote third option proposed over the customs union challenge which which, which Theresa May faces. Um, What do you know and what's your view of this, this third option? Does it exist and what would it be? Yes, well, she had, as you know, two options, this customs partnership, which would have meant something similar in a way to a customs union, except that the the UK would collect tariffs on behalf of the European Union and then uh, possibly refund some uh, British businesses if the goods were actually only destined for for the UK market. That was one option, and that was Theresa May's favourite option. Then there was another, which was called maximum facilitation or MaxFAC for short and that was the idea was that you would use various technological and administrative methods to ease uh, friction on the border uh, on all borders uh, all of of the UK's borders and so neither of these really was satisfactory and uh, and the cabinet was split over it and so what uh, what the talk now around Westminster is around this uh, kind of a modification of MaxFAC and they call it MaxFAC plus delay. And so in other words, that you say that what we're going for is this option, which is the one that's favoured by the Brexit here, is that you actually do properly get out of the customs union and you use technology to try to sort out the problems. But this is all going to take a long time. And in the meantime, that you have an extended transition period during which time the UK remains in the EU customs union so that the regular transition period is due to end at the end of 2020. But this would go on longer. Now, it's still, uh, you know, know, all of this is still very, very much up for discussion uh, within the British cabinet, within the parliament, and of course, between the UK and the European Union, because the uh, the European Union has so far rejected all of uh, the UK's proposed options. Um, Fiuk, listening to that, if MaxFact plus delay is the new proposal on the table, which, which Theresa May is trying to get through, At some point, it'll be up to the EU and indeed to the Irish government to decide whether that's acceptable. And it strikes me that from what we know of this, all these proposals that we've heard very badly fleshed out, be it said, about technological solutions to this problem, uh, the Irish government is, is definitely not keen on that. So would we as a country be willing to go along with that if the ultimate outcome of it was agreed to be some form of max fact? It's hard to see that because just as recently as yesterday evening in the Dáil, Taoiseach ridiculed the idea of MaxFac. He said it sounded like a brand of deodorant or makeup and it was ridiculous in its in its conception. Um, and given the fact that the 
Taoiseach and the Minister of Foreign Affairs have repeatedly said they want no physical infrastructure on the border, be it drones, be it cameras, be it whatever, even if that's to be introduced in 10 years' time, it's hard to see how they would agree to it. And I think the feeling in government is that they bent uh, away from their preferred option to facilitate Theresa May's idea of a customs partnership. And they felt by allowing this come onto the table in negotiations that it would help her get off the, the hook of the backstop, if you like. Even though the customs partnership is not viewed with, with great enthusiasm by the No, it's not viewed with great either. enthusiasm and, and the, the government even believes that to be an in, inadequate option. They say, look, that is the basis for future discussion and development. It is not a solution in itself. So it is hard to see how they could adopt MaxFAC as a serious proposal or look at it on as a serious proposal, even if it is delayed by 10 or 12 years' time, given that they have so strongly said there should be no physical infrastructure at all. So I think they feel that they have helped Theresa May by taking customs partnership seriously heretofore. It'd be hard to see them taking MaxFAC plus delay seriously. Lisa, what do you think the government should, should do now? I think we need to be very careful as to how we proceed on this particular issue. Um Max FAC, max facilitation, whatever you want to call it, that's not good for Ireland because that leads to a border. So let's be very clear about that. I think we've been far too nice, far too facilitative of the Tory infighting that's going on and we're allowing it to drag on to the detriment of our own country. Now, I understand the requirement and the need to ensure that the UK get a good deal because a good deal for, for England is a good deal for us. But we need to be very clear that we have to bat for Ireland, first and foremost, the entire island of Ireland. Uh, in terms of, of MaxFact plus delay, what happens when the delay period is over and we then head to MaxFacts? What happens then? It suits the British government to kick this can down the road. And even the language around get off the hook of the backstop, that's been used by, by Tory MPs. The backstop is not a hook to be gotten off. It is there to protect our citizens, both north and south of the border, to protect our economy and to ensure that the rights that citizens in the north of, Ar- north of Ireland have in terms of the European Union, that they are maintained. Um, in terms of maintaining alignment with the customs union, that still doesn't deal with the issue around the single market and the movement of people. Sure, and that's, so a, we don't, that's a whole way. Yeah, we don't have um, we don't have any details of that yet. And but, we all but know wouldn't one of the there key... be pra- a pragmatic political reality that if the government were, if if something was on the table which involved delaying things for kicking the can down the road for whatever two mm-hmm. years, three years, whatever it might be, with an open outcome. In other, in other words, that, that we get rid of this, this deadline which is looming at the moment. In, wouldn't it be quite realistic for the government in the uh, hope, at least, that the political landscape in the UK might be very different in two or three years' time to go along with that in some form? I don't think we can um, rely on the landscape changing in the UK. That's not our, it's not within our gift to change that. And why do we want to get rid of the deadline? Who does that suit? Because that doesn't suit us. The deadline is there to put pressure on the UK to get off the fence, make a decision for Theresa May to show some leadership on this. And you have Jacob Rees-Mogg yesterday saying that he's not open to being conciliatory on this issue, that he wants a hard Brexit and he wants it now. And I think if we see a situation where Jacob Rees-Mogg and his other Brexiteers are somehow saying, yeah, we're OK with this Max Fax plus delay, that should send alarm bells right across this country. Well, let me, ask, let me ask Dennis about that, because Dennis, what are the political realities within the Tory party that Theresa Fay faces now over the next few weeks as she tries to thread this uh, thread to this needle? 
It's complicated because on the one hand, uh, she's got this big block of Brexiteers led by Jacob Rees-Mogg. There's about 60 of them, the so-called European Research Group. And they, uh, you know, they've been uh, making a lot of noise. But so far, on the, you know, in all of these negotiations, they've made quite a lot of noise about, you know, at every stage, you know, they shouldn't pay a penny to Brussels. OK, you're going to pay 40 million. We can live with that or 40 billion, whatever it is. Uh, you know, there should be no transition arrangement. OK, well, if we have to live with it, we live with it. And now they're, uh, you know, they're kicking up about the customs partnership. And what she does have over them is that she can say, look, if you do uh, decide to push this thing too far and send me over to Brussels so that I come back without a deal, uh, that, that I'm not offering the Europeans anything they can possibly agree to, then this, this comes back to Parliament. And in Parliament, there is a majority to stay in the customs union. There may, in the, in, you know, in the case of uh, the threat to leave without a deal, be a majority for delaying Brexit, for staying in the customs union and the European uh, single market, so that all of this holds a, a threat for uh, the Brexiteers, as well as for Theresa May herself who uh, could find herself being turfed out, you know, if she uh, upsets her MPs too much. I think, though, on the, just to go back briefly to what you were talking about a minute ago, where uh, if you look back to March, one of the things that the UK agreed to with the EU was that there would be a backstop and that this backstop would be in place unless and until a solution was found to keep the border open. Now, you could, you know, they haven't actually agreed, obviously, uh, the precise terms of that backstop, and that's uh, you're still under negotiation. But you could uh, see that, say, in the case of MaxFact, plus delay, that if this uh, backstop is in place unless and until uh, a solution is found, then basically the backstop, whatever it is, would remain in place unless and until this system was made to work. And presumably you would have to have a system that was agreed to work by both sides. So, I mean, there may be some kind of uh, security in it for the government depending on how the rest of the negotiations go. To clarify that, Dennis, might the backstop then be that that the UK effectively, in all but name perhaps, remains in the customs union until an acceptable MaxFac is implemented? The UK as a yes. whole, and that avoids the border in the Irish Sea thing feared yes. by the DUP. Only for now. Exactly. So, I mean, if, if, you know, so in a way, like the, the idea of, back, of MaxFac plus delay is that effectively you do remain in the customs union on until you get your MaxFac in order. And uh, and then if the, uh, you know, if the European Union uh, says, well, actually, this MaxFac is never in order, uh, then, you know, then that status quo would remain. And it's, it's a sort of, a, it's an irony in a way, because one of the problems that the Brexiteers had with the idea of the customs partnership was that they said, you know, their suspicion was that this was designed never to work. You know, not only was it unworkable, it was supposed to be unworkable, and the reason would be that then, uh, while they were busy trying to make it workable, you'd remain in the customs union and so you'd be remaining that, you know, in there through the back door. Well, it may be that this MaxFact plus delay has precisely the same effect. Lisa? Yeah, I mean, I think any withdrawal treaty that includes MaxFact plus delay um, is a bad deal for Ireland. And I think that we should reject that. That'll be my view on it and the view of the Fianna Fáil party. Um, this suggestion that somehow we can push this down the road, if we do that, 
And we then get into a situation where we are negotiating the future trading relationship and the other member states are involved in that and everything is working fine except the border issue and the Irish issues. We may find ourselves six or seven years down the road with not as much support as we have today. That is why it's so important that this issue gets resolved now and not in seven years' time, as has been discussed. I think it suits the British government um, to push this down the road. And like I said, if we see this European research group and those 60-odd MPs rolling in behind this idea, then we need to be very concerned. Can I ask you, Fiat, do Leo Varadkar and Simon Coveney share Fianna Fáil's view that the best thing to do is to get this completely sorted out within the current deadlines? Yeah, I think that there is a sense that if there's a row to be had, have it in June rather than letting it hang around for the summer and wait until the agreement has to be finalised in October. I think there is a definite sense that they want this done now, that they want, even talking to people in the last few days, that even if there is a new customs proposal put on the table, be it customs partnership, be it MaxFAC plus delay, that they still want the backstop nailed down because they see that, like, like there's a sequencing problem. As we, as Dennis has said, it is unless and until, but if there's still an unless and until hanging around, you still need a backstop in place. And I think the point of Ireland facilitating any new options would not be to amend the meaning of the backstop or to change the nature of the agreement between the EU and K on it. It would be to help Theresa May sell the backstop to the DUP in particular, because if she comes on board with a customs arrangement that takes in the whole of the UK, as Dennis has said, she can then say, look, this is my option A, therefore the backstop is the backstop and it's not going to be used, but I have to agree to it anyway, in a different, perhaps legal text than has been floated heretofore. But I think the government sense is that the DUP have changed somewhat, that the DUP now in recent weeks have said that their only red line is that they stay lockstep with the rest of the United so Kingdom. So they've shifted. They've shifted. Their, 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 their desire to exit their, the custom union yeah, seems to have they, they, somewhat. They still say that they want to. They pay lip service too. But you look at recent interviews from Nigel Dodds and Arlene Foster, their one red line is they want to remain in lockstep with the rest of the United Kingdom. So if Theresa May makes a move that brings the United Kingdom as a whole into a new customs arrangement, then she can say to the DUP, look, this is my preferred option, this is what I'm working towards, the backstop will never okay, be implemented. Okay, well that might, some relief for Theresa May, but Dennis, I do, I do wonder, and I know you have to go, so I'll let you go, let you go in a sec, but I do wonder, I was reading Jan and Ganesh this week uh, in the Financial Times and also in the, in the Irish Times and his analysis of what Brexiteers want and um, my Irish perspective of it was was that Brexiteers were essentially behaving like Eamon de Valera was in 1920. What they what they wanted was not to have their names on whatever agreement was was uh, was, was 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 finally reached. Is that? Do you think there's any truth in that? And if that's the case, what does that mean for the real politic for Theresa May? I think one of the most important facts about Brexit was that it was a surprise. And it wasn't just a surprise to the pollsters and the pundits. Uh, it was a surprise to the people involved in the campaign, in both campaigns. And the people involved in the Leave campaign, most of them, people like Boris Johnson and Michael Gove, until a few weeks before the referendum, they were never talking about leaving the European Union. They were talking about staying in the European Union with a reformed relationship. So it's not as if these people had, uh, you know, as Jan Ganesh suggested the other day, you know, he was suggesting they'd been thinking about this for years. Most of them hadn't. Nigel Farage had. Some of the other Tory backbenchers had. But most of the leading figures uh, in the cabinet uh, who are now basically shaping Brexit, they had never really planned for this. And so they didn't have a plan. Uh, Mrs. May made a mistake. She made a couple of mistakes. One was that uh, she triggered Article 50 before she had to. And so uh, this uh, two-year clock started ticking downwards before she had made up her mind what she really wanted. Uh, 
we're getting out of the customs union, we're getting out of the single market, and we're getting out of the European Court of Justice. So what you now have is that, uh, you know, Brexit, uh, you know, they sort of rushed into the negotiations. They're all feeling unhappy about it, and they feel as if, you know, Brexit... Uh, you know, is being treated as if it's a problem rather than a great opportunity. And yet they don't really know how to make it a great opportunity because on the one hand, they will, you know, the likes of Jacob Rees-Mogg would like to talk about a global Britain and we're going to have trade deals with everybody around the world. And yet they talk to really actually existing businesses who say, you know, if we don't maintain this frictionless trade, then we go out of business and if, you know, or we go somewhere else. And, you know, so, so, so they're caught in this bind of a kind of a, a joyless Brexit. And, uh, and so, and I think that none of them particularly want to be associated with that. And that's where their frustration is at this moment, because even if they go for max fact plus delay uh, as the lesser of uh, whatever number of evils we have here now, then uh, it still means being bound into the customs union, bound into EU rules, unable to, to forge these great deals with the US and Brazil and wherever else they want. And, uh, and and so they're out, but they uh, but they've got no, none of the fun of being out. And so I think that so I think there is some truth to that that nobody wants their name on this thing. And then uh, half of the people in the government, including Mrs. May herself, are pretty reluctant Brexiteers in the first place. And uh, so we're, we seem to be marching towards this destination of getting out of the European Union. But even as we speak, nobody knows exactly how it's going to work out. And it in and in fact even now, although it's unlikely. There is still a possibility that the thing will be delayed or derailed. And that, of course, is the Brexiteers' huge fear. Dennis, we'll let you go. Thanks for joining us. At least I think you were taking umbrage at my Eamon de Valera comparison there. Yeah, I think you probably looked at my face when you said it. Um, and I think there are many fine Fianna Fáil people out there that would very much disagree with you on that. I'm actually reading David McCullough's book at the minute and it provides an interesting insight. I think that's a podcast for another day. It we is. might return to it. The thing about Brexit and Fianna Fáil, though, Lisa's, Lisa's you know... Uh, opposition to this idea, the interesting dynamic about June is going to be as well the political reaction domestically to whatever happens at that summit. If our government decides to compromise, we have had in the past a type of Green Jersey approach where Fianna Fáil, the Labour Party, etc., Sinn Féin row in behind the government, but both Sinn Féin and Fianna Fáil have put the government on notice that if things go wrong in June, they won't be as standoffish in opposing the government's position as they were before. So I think that's another consideration that Leo Vrack will have in his mind going into June. Can I ask you, and I'm going to put this to, to, uh, to Lisa in a second, how stands the, you know, the long-standing commitment to an all-party approach to uh, Anglo-Irish relations right now? I think it's still intact. It, it is still intact. Nobody's talking about like, you know, actively going out and taking an opposite position and Michal Martin is not going to fly to Brussels and seek a meeting with Michal, Michel Barnier and say this is my idea rather than the idea put forward by the Taoiseach but I think that both uh, main opposition parties Sinn Féin and Fianna Fáil have quite clearly put a political bar uh, in place for Leo Varadkar that he has to jump over by June or else they will hold him to account and try and politically damage him if he's seen to come back but what they would characterise as an inadequate deal it's not lost on the political system that his biggest bounce came after December when he was st- seen to have stood up for Irish interests uh, against uh, Britain. And I myself actually was out canvassing with the Taoiseach in Ratfarnham a week or two ago uh, for uh, the referendum. And that was said to him by a number of people, you know, fair play to your standing up for Irish interests. So if he if he's not seen to do that or if he's seen to acquiesce to a fudge or to a kicking the can in the road... There is real political danger for him and Fianna Fáil and so Sinn Féin will that, only that jump on that. So that political dynamic then, Lisa, limits the, the government's 
room for compromise or for fudge, if you were going to be pejorative about it? Yeah, I mean, I think we've been very clear from the beginning of these negotiations, and I myself, when I took over the role about six weeks ago, that we are supportive of the Irish government's attempts to secure a good deal for Ireland, but that support is conditional on them doing a good job. And it's my view, and it's the view of the Fianna Fáil party, that the backstop was oversold in December. And there was a big press conference and it was very glitzy and it was very shiny looking. And we essentially told our citizens and our business community, this was sorted, nothing to worry about, we've got our backstop. Cast iron, bulletproof. That was the language of Antishuk at the time. We now know the backstop is still on the negotiating table. It's not finalised. In fact, Theresa May rejected, outright rejected the wording of the backstop in March, said it was a constitutional threat to the integrity of the United Kingdom. Very strong language. So we are concerned, actually. Um, the June deadline is there because we have a, a European Council meeting where all of the heads of state will come together to see how Brexit is progressing. Um, we don't want to see this issue left till October because the withdrawal treaty is supposed to be finalised by October so it can then go to the Council and Parliament to be ratified, voted upon and we should have Brexit by March of next year. The transition period is there, the 21 months, but it's only we only get the transition period if we have the withdrawal treaty. So we could potentially be looking at a cliff edge for next March that we're not prepared for. That's not just no, me nobody's saying Nobody's prepared for that. The business that, community that, that, are, are saying this. I met with Chambers Ireland last week. They tell me 15% of their members are have identified themselves as being affected by Brexit. They tell me the majority of that 15% do not have the resources or the capabilities to prepare for Brexit. That's a concern. And what we don't want, the reason that we have the timelines that we have and whether Theresa May triggered Article 50 too, too early, I don't actually agree with that, that idea. Um, we have the, the negotiations are starting now for the next European budget, the MFF. And that's why we, the UK cannot be part of this, those negotiations, does not want to pay into that budget and be part of that next budget period. That's why it has to leave 21 months from March of next year. So the deadlines are, we're kind of constrained with those deadlines, actually. I think there is a real sense that people want to bring this to a head in June. Uh, there is a real sense in government and we ourselves reported recently on Michel Barnier's briefing to the perm reps in Brussels after he visited uh, the border region in which he said, look, we're going to use Ireland as a leverage issue to get clarity from Britain in June. There's a real sense that people want this settled does now. Can, does that mean we could expect fireworks? I think so. I think June is going to be a very rocky month and this the, the, the run into June is going to be really something to watch from a political spectator point of view, from a national interest point of view. It's going to be a really testing time for the government. Now, it gives me no joy to say this. I don't think we'll see progress in the backstop in June. And I say this because I met with Michelle Barnier and we had the Brexit Stakeholders Forum meeting in Dundalk and, and a couple of weeks ago. And I asked that question. I've asked the question several times to Simon Coveney. I've asked him yesterday in the chamber again, what do you mean by significant progress in June? And he, he did say at the previous Brexit Stakeholder Forum meeting in Ivy House about six weeks ago that he would put a stop to talks if there was not significant progress. But he has not articulated what he means mm. by significant progress. Now, at the meeting in Dundalk, um, we had discussions around that. I took from that that significant progress to Michel Barnier and the team would be some text on a page. Not the entire provision around the backstop fully drafted, mm. but some text on a page. To me, that's not significant progress, actually. The, the, but we'd have to wait and see. The way it was put to me by someone involved in the negotiations was that they want to bottom out the backstop and at a very minimum, it was stressed at okay. a minimum. They Lang language is being, yeah. is being stretched, you know, beyond, the, sorry, beyond what sorry, it's supposed they, to be. They would, say, they would say that at a very minimum, they expect the British to come back with their inter legal interpretation of the backstop sometime in the next few weeks in advance of June. So, like, and then I don't think we're going to get legal. I think Lisa mm -hmm. is right. We're not going to get a final tied-down legal text in June, there's going to be some sort of broad agreement about what the backstop, if we get that far, means. And then October will be when it's all tied up in a bow.
And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to Lisa, to Fiak, to Sarah and to Dennis for joining us today. Thanks also to our producer Declan Conlon and engineer JJ Vernon. And remember, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. You can find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. And your views are always very welcome. Uh, I was hoping actually to bring a couple of questions on Brexit, but we didn't have time. So we may bring them in in the weeks to come. But thank you for your emails. You can also find me always on Twitter, so you can get in touch with me there. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much for listening. 